the cult of personality was a defining feature of his dictatorship. Violence and the pursuit of violence had become part of the modern Soviet state. Ultimately, Stalin will be remembered as one of the bloodiest dictators in history. You have 670,000 people arrested and you have 376,000 people executed. That, that is just horrific. In the Great Purge, 36% or so of the victims, over a third, were minorities. Only 1.6 of the Soviet Union's population consisted of these minorities. So you can see this was incredibly spiteful. It was as evil as anything Hitler had ever done. Joseph Stalin was a Georgian revolutionary, essentially, uh, but he also would become uh, the leader of the Soviet Union. He is one of the most titanic figures of the 20th century. Stalin was a thin young boy with a churlish temperament. And as the years developed, he became very power hungry, he was quite malevolent, he was one to bear grudges and to want vengeance really. He was also quite devious and manipulative and we can see those traits of his character being very important as he catapulted himself into absolute power. Stalin was a bit of a sickly child, frankly. I mean, he had quite a few health problems. Stalin had smallpox in his early years and was left with pockmarks. And then at the age of 12, he was really quite badly injured when he was hit by a carriage. Uh, and that is considered the cause of what was uh, a lifelong disability in his left arm. These physical scars may have made him determined to overcompensate and that had an impact on the way that he wielded power in such an unyielding manner. Stalin came from quite humble origins. His mother was a washerwoman and his father was a shoemaker. Stalin's father uh, was called Bessarian and he was a shoemaker. Uh, and he worked in, in a workshop owned by someone else. Initially, everything was going quite well. The, the workshop was successful, but then it went into decline. Uh, and Stalin and his family found, found themselves in poverty. Batarian didn't handle this very well. He became an alcoholic, drunkenly would beat up his wife. He would beat up his son, Stalin. These beatings seem to have had the effect of toughening up or hardening Stalin. His father often 
in later life uh, pursuing uh, alcohol uh, meant that Stalin was distrustful of, of his father and the father figures. He had a very doting mother and uh, he greatly loved and admired his mother who would do all she could to ensure that Stalin got an education in, in his early years. It was a pretty rough and ready world, you know, that he grew up in. Um, you know, he was, he was extremely poor, but I think he understood pretty early that kind of um, effort and books and learning were a way out of the conditions in which he'd been raised as a child. He had early training in, uh, in the seminary Russian Orthodox um, system. Uh, whilst there, however, he would come across banned censored readings. From a really young age, Stalin devotes himself to Karl Marx's socio-political theory, which of course is called Marxism. Uh, and in Georgia, where Stalin was growing up, Marxism was kind of on the rise. Uh, but it was just one of the various forms of socialism that was kind of very much opposed to uh, the rule of the Tsar and his authorities. At the end of the 19th century, Russia was still ruled by the Tsar. What had changed in 1917 was that in the previous period, the Tsar, Nicholas II, was seen as invincible, infallible, the father of the Russian people. There was no dispute or question about his rule. The Tsar decided in 1915 to dismiss his commander-in-chief of the army and to take that position himself. So this meant that when things went wrong in the war or where there were massive casualties, then he was to blame. So really what happened during the First World War in the Tsar's rule is that for the first time, he wasn't infallible or immune to blame anymore. The Tsar system by this point in time is inherently based on clientism, is inherently based on connections and who you know. And this leads to a, an inefficient but also a corrupt element within the economy. And gradually, over the years, this corruption becomes public knowledge. Stalin's you know, someone who knows personally what it is like you know, to grow up among the kind of very impoverished laboring classes of the of the empire and the hatred of privileged russia you know of wealthy russia I mean, a great deal of what animates the revolution is this desire to kind of overturn existing privileges coming from a poor background himself stalin was very impressed with the russian social democratic movement and its determination to bring about revolution and all of its arguments about class struggle. He joined the Russian social democratic movement at the age of 18 and became very interested and engaged in its social revolutionary outlook um, and very determined to take part in its development and growth. In Stalin's training in seminary is not unusual. There's a way in which the kind of the, the promise of the revolution sort of echoes the promise of salvation within Christian theology. So that 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 sort of move from kind of seminary boy to committed Marxist is not as much of a jump as we might think. Stalin's uh, childhood in poverty 
certainly impacted his beliefs later in life. He grew up in an impoverished environment. He grew up with a mother often having to support him uh, on her own. Uh, he grew up in going to a school system where he often didn't have uh, the materials that other children had. And he would forever hold a, a chip on his shoulder. He would forever believe that this ensured his proletarian credentials above others. Stalin was born in Georgia and some of his earliest encounters with radicals were Georgian nationalists. He soon turned against those Georgian nationalists and embraced Russian Marxism for its internationalist revolutionary possibilities. He wanted to change not just Georgia, he wanted to change the world. In 1903, the Russian Social Democratic Party split um, into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. There were important differences between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks in terms of how they saw this revolution would take place. So some in the party believe that, you know, the job of the party should be basically to kind of spread the gospel of socialism and to agitate among the workers, but ultimately it's the workers themselves who will take forwards the revolution. There is an alternative strand, which is the one pioneered by Lenin, um, which says that, look, the workers basically aren't really up to this on their own. They'll be too easily bought off by factory bosses. We need a professional group of revolutionaries who will devote themselves to the cause of revolution and they will take the lead in bringing it about. So most associated with Bolshevism was Lenin and the Mensheviks were most associated with Martov and with Trotsky. Stalin's earliest engagement with politics often came through the lens of the Mensheviks who were dominant in Georgia at the time. Um, however, he soon became very enamored with Lenin and the Bolsheviks because they were hell-bent on implementing revolution, stoking revolution uh, as soon as they could. And Stalin gets involved in, you know, the kind of rough and ready activities that, in which professional revolutionaries are engaged. And that's everything from, you know, holding clandestine meetings, setting up illegal printing presses, robbing banks to pay for, um, you know, pay for the activities of, of the movement. And so he sort of cuts his teeth as a revolutionary in, in this pretty rough and tumble world of the revolutionary underground in, in Georgia at, at the turn of the 20th century. As Stalin became more and more interested and engaged in revolutionary politics, he came to the attentions of the Tsarist authorities. Um, he was arrested several times and eventually sent into exile in Siberia. Roman Malinovsky was a, a really prominent Bolshevik before the Russian Revolution, uh, while at the same time he was working a, a, as a secret agent, a really well-paid agent for the Okhrana, the Tsarist secret police. 
There's this Bolshevik fundraising ball at which Stalin is arrested, uh, which Malinowski had persuaded him to attend. Uh, and had even gone and lent Stalin a suit and a, a nice silk tie or cravat. Uh, and Malinowski was talking to Stalin when detectives took Stalin uh, away. And, and, and Malinowski said, oh, I'll free you, Stalin, I'll free you. And in July 1913, he betrayed this plan for Sverdlov and Stalin to escape and actually, you know, warned the police chief in, in, in Tvarohansk. This, I think, feeds into a perception that, you know, many in the Bolshevik leadership have, most notably Stalin, but not only Stalin, that there are lots of sort of hidden enemies. Stalin is sent into exile in Siberia, but what he does is actually escapes, and then he's caught, and then he's sent back to Siberia. However, this time he's sent to this hamlet called Kureka, and that's right on the edge of the Arctic Circle. It's a place where you don't want to be, and, and escape, frankly, is basically impossible. Now, as the years go by, he has communications with key Bolsheviks, including Lenin, who are keen to monitor his health. At various points, it seems his physical and his mental health does suffer, but he remains a key Bolshevik. Stalin is suspecting one man to be an Okrana spy in his circle, and that is Malinowski. Uh, and that is confirmed to be absolutely correct many years later. Uh, and that is going to fuel Stalin's future distrust of his comrades. It's a distrust and a paranoia that he's going to take with him to his grave. Having suffered in his exile in Siberia, on grounds of health, he asked to be moved uh, out of Siberia towards the Urals. In this closer proximity, as February 1917 takes place, he's able to then find his way back to St. Petersburg and ultimately becomes part of the 1917 revolutions. It seemed in this period after the century had turned um, with prices of um, grain increasing and therefore prices of bread increasing that unrest was coming to the fore and we saw that in a revolution in 1905 and then the revolutions of 1917. So Stalin returns back to Petrograd in March 1917. He initially, alongside Kamenev, takes over the editorship of the main Bolshevik newspaper, Pravda. And there he becomes a key leading Bolshevik in 1917. By 1917, the view is that Nicholas II is himself the problem, that his disastrous prosecution of the conflict is effectively driving Russia off a cliff. Um, and what, what a lot of Russian elites hope is that if they can get rid of Nicholas, that will prevent a violent revolution from below. And of course, the tragedy from their perspective is that forcing Nicholas to abdicate, and he's, you know, he's, he's pressured into doing this, really just opens the floodgates to revolution rather than sort of, you know, holding them, holding them closed. So after the February Revolution, we have the struggle for who's going to lead the revolution and what that revolution is going to be. Initially, you have a system of the provisional government taking over the higher executive offices of the state with a Soviet system promising to represent the people at the bottom. Initially, he's arguing for something of a compromised approach. He wants to allow the provisional government at the time some scope 
to develop control over the country. Lenin, in exile at the time, is pulling his hair out, what little hair remains, because he wants to push the socialist revolution here and now. So, come October 1917, as the provisional government is floundering, as the Soviets are uncertain what to do, Lenin urges the seizure of power. So in the October Revolution, key buildings like telegraph offices and railway stations were taken over and controlled by the Bolsheviks. Lenin and the Bolsheviks have always said, all power to the Soviets, peace, land and bread. Provide bread for the people, end the war, give the peasants some land. The Bolsheviks see themselves as the good guys. I mean, they believe that they are on the side of, of creating a future, just and secure society that will be free of kind of oppression and tyranny. And if you have to murder some individuals to get there, that's a price worth paying. The very next day, Lenin formed a government called the Council of People's Commissars with himself as leader. And they appoint key persons in charge of what used to be called ministries will now be called commissariats. And that's a new government taking place. That's a new red dawn, as they came to understand it. In the immediate wake of the October Revolution, as the various commissariat roles were being handed out, Stalin was perhaps viewed as the grey blur, the comrade card index, as Trotsky called him, not the intellectual powerhouse of Lenin or Trotsky or the powerhouse that Bukharin would become. This is probably a disservice to Stalin, who had published on important issues, who was actually himself a revolutionary intellectual in his own right but just not quite of the caliber of Lenin and Trotsky. So you've got these three figures who are Stalin's main political rivals. Uh, you've got Leon Trotsky. Now he is the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs uh, uh, of the Russian Union. And then you've got uh, Lenin's deputy chairman, a man called Lev Kamenev. And then you've got the chairman of the Petrograd Soviet, a man called Grigory Zinoviev. These three guys, Trotsky, Kamenev and Zinoviev, you know, they look down on Stalin. They think he's a bit of a hick. He's not very well educated. They think he's intellectually inferior. What they're doing is looking down on him, but as they do that, they're underrating him. So when Lenin was first made aware of Stalin, he was initially quite enthused. Here was a young man, a young revolutionary from Georgia who could speak to the multi-ethnic, multinational nature of the Russian imperial system, of the Russian empire. After 1917, infamously, their relationship became more tense. It seems that during this time, Lenin didn't particularly trust Stalin, and that situation didn't change. So initially, Stalin is made the general secretary. Now, we know this becomes a very powerful position in the coming years, but at this point in time, it is more of an organisational role. And, of course, Stalin was disgruntled by that. So he wanted power, he wanted his share, and he was 
disappointed to see the others getting positions that he saw to be better. What Stalin very quickly learns is how to use this new office of his in order to gain lots of advantages uh, uh, over other people you know, within the Communist Party. Uh, so what he's doing, he's preparing the agenda, he's directing the course of meetings, and also the General Secretary, he's appointing new party leaders. So he's got a kind of network of, of, of people loyal to him. It's kind of patronage that he's established, and this is going to be really useful. With the ability to command what the Bolsheviks are discussing, what issues are being raised, he can wield quite a bit of power. Crucially, I think by the time Lenin, Zinoviev and Kamenev realise what a power Stalin is within the party, and much of that power comes from his position as general secretary, um, it's too late. So there will be key meetings and debates um, in which the party comes together to decide you know, policy and Trotsky or Zinoviev, who are both very accomplished orators, will win all of the arguments and then the people will vote with Stalin's clique because they all owe their positions to Stalin in the first place. So Lenin, after 1917, is in the ascendancy. It looks like he's going to have a few years to build his socialist revolution, to build what he wants to be a global revolution. On May the 25th, 1922, Lenin suffers a stroke while he's recovering from surgery uh, that was attempting to remove a bullet that had been lodged in his neck after a, a failed assassination attempt uh, made back in August 1918. Lenin was really debilitated after his stroke and, and unsurprisingly, he has to go into, into retirement or semi-retirement. And, and Stalin would visit him often and he would kind of be acting as his intermediary with the outside world which of course is going to put Stalin in a really powerful position. Stalin was the main communicator between Lenin and all other Bolsheviks. But understandably, Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, was also communicating with fellow Bolsheviks. And Stalin told her not to do this, and did so in rather aggressive terms. And on this matter, Lenin blew up. He was deeply angered at how Stalin had treated his wife and a key Bolshevik in this moment in time. Lenin knows that he's on his way out. He knows he's going to die. And what he does is dictates a, a political testament, uh, proposing changes to the whole structure of all the Soviet governing bodies. And what he also does is to criticise Bolshevik leaders like uh, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Trotsky, Bukharin, uh, Piatikov and Stalin. And then in a postscript, he also suggests that Stalin should actually be removed from his position as General Secretary of the Russian Communist Party Central Committee. So, so this is a bad day for Stalin, make no mistake.
Stalin obviously doesn't come out very well from this, this final testament. Stalin is criticized for his gruffness, his attitude towards Skripskaya in Lenin's final years, and also towards a potential dictatorial nature and how he uses his office. Stalin is obviously quite upset about this, but it's agreed that this will not be made public. And in not making it public, Stalin ultimately comes to benefit. This was suppressed and the document was not, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't acted on by the party leaderships. So it's not only Stalin who covers it up, but there was kind of a discussion. Uh, I think Stalin said, you know, that's not Lenin speaking, that's his illness. In March 23, Lenin has another stroke. It's his third stroke and it's really debilitating. He's lost his ability to speak. Um, and then that month he experiences, you know, partial paralysis. It, it, on his right side, and uh, you know, he, he's clearly dying. And then on the 21st of January 1924, Lenin falls into a coma, and later that day, he dies. And there's then a great deal of sort of jockeying for position around Lenin's funeral and Lenin's funeral cortege because it's all about sort of framing, you know, who are the legitimate successors of Lenin. The man who takes charge of Lenin's funeral is Joseph Stalin, and he's also one of the pallbearers of Lenin's coffin. Uh, and that was against the wishes of, of Lenin's widow. Uh, you know, Stalin's doing this to kind of bolster his image as a very dedicated and devoted Leninist. Stalin used his cunning and deviousness to take advantage of the death of Lenin by really putting himself in a position of leadership and really making sure that his rivals, particularly Trotsky, but also some of the others, he played them off one against another in order to ensure the supremacy of his own position. Stalin is forging this tripartite, this triumvirate with, with Lev Kamenev and Grigory Zinoviev. And that triumvirate is, is positioned against Trotsky. Uh, because, you know, what Stalin's trying to do is to prevent Trotsky from succeeding Lenin in any forthcoming power struggle. Stalin's also in charge of the guest list at the funeral, and one of the invitations mysteriously gets lost, and that's the one to Leon Trotsky, Stalin's big potential rival. And this tarnished his reputation and just didn't look good. On Stalin's suggestion, Lenin's body was embalmed. Not all of the other leaders agreed with that, but he kind of persisted in this. Placed in a grand communist mausoleum on Red Square for members of the public to be able to file past and catch a glimpse of Lenin. On the eve of Lenin's funeral, Stalin made quite an important speech talking about we communists being of a very special mold and a special type, and really trying to unify the party in a way that it simply wasn't. And Stalin was sort of saying, actually, if we're going to be the successors of this great comrade Lenin, we need to unify. And he was also calling for the party to be unified under himself. So by the end of 1929, Stalin had turned the position of general secretary into the absolute center of power of the party 
and therefore the entire Soviet Union. Despite Lenin's last will and testament, Stalin had maneuvered himself into a position of undisputed leader and ruler. And from that point on, the cult of the leadership that surrounded Stalin just continued to grow. In the 1930s, the Soviet economy was still backward compared to uh, those of the Western powers. Many of the fruits of industrialization and urbanization in the decades before 1917 have been destroyed in the First World War and the Civil War. So in, in some respects, the Russian economy in the 1920s is more backward than it was on the eve of the First World War. And Stalin was determined to turn that around. He wanted the Soviet economy not only to catch up, but maybe even to surpass or overtake that of other powers. To that end, he put into place policies of collectivization and of industrialization. And these had very significant effects on the population. Collectivization was designed to make agriculture more efficient and also to do away with private land ownership. Collectivization is the establishment of state-controlled farming. So peasants are forced into collective farms or collective farms are set up in their, in their villages. All of their land and livestock is taken away from them and they are forced to work as the state would wish them to work. What Stalin's policies lead to um, is a major famine in the Soviet Union in 1932 and 1933, uh, particularly in Ukraine. And you've got something like 5-7 to million people dying. The social and economic landscape of Russia between 1928 and 1938 is completely transformed. Um, you know, it's a very, very brutal experience of industrialization that is forced on the population by the state, using essentially wartime methods. The Kulaks were the wealthier peasants who had resisted Stalin's drastic collectivization measures. In Russian history, uh, Soviet history, a Kulak is a wealthy or prosperous peasant, uh, a man who owns a relatively large farm, maybe several head of cattle, horses, who's financially capable of hiring labour and then actually renting land out. So obviously this didn't sit very well or fit very well with Stalin's collectivisation policy. As we approached the 30s, it became a dangerous label to be associated with. To be a kulak was to be a rich peasant, was to be someone that wasn't working with the state or on behalf of the state or in a collective farm. Someone who was looking to profit off the state for their own self-interest. Someone who wasn't part of the collective we, but part of the individual I. Stalin regarded the Kulaks as a political threat too. Stalin looks at the Kulaks and he's very suspicious of them. He thinks that they could form an alternative power base. He thinks that they could mount an insurrection against him. 
So what Stalin does is to try to basically uh, neuter, if you like, the kulaks. Uh, and so he assigns them to three different categories. Uh, one is that uh, uh, category A, if you like, is those to be shot or imprisoned, uh, as decided by the local secret police. Then you've got the second category, like category B, if you like, uh, and these were the kulaks who were going to be sent to Siberia or to the Arctic or to the Ural Mountains or all the way down to Kazakhstan uh, after their property had all been confiscated. And then you've got a third category, category C, uh, those to be evicted from their homes and then sent to labour colonies, labour camps within their own districts. You know, th th there's no good place for these people to go. So when the collectivization brigades are being sent into Russian uh, villages to seize the livestock and seize grain from the peasants, any peasant, irrespective of how um, poor they are, is branded a kulak. Make no mistake, you know, what we've got here is a policy, you know, ordered by Stalin to liquidate the kulaks. Uh, as a class of people. And this is one of the very first legal orders issued by a state uh, in human history, ordering the mass murder of some of its own citizens. To a large extent, the reason that Stalin never really faced a major popular uprising was the violent arm of the state had been extended, had been built up. Violence and the pursuit of violence had become part of the modern Soviet state. Ultimately, Stalin's wife, upon hearing of the various details of forced collectivization and the coming famine, she would ultimately take her life, commit suicide. On the morning of the 9th of November, Stalin's wife, she's, she's alone in her room and, and, and she shoots herself in the heart. And of course, she dies instantly. And Stalin regarded this as an act of personal treachery. This has also been seen as a moment where Stalin's last connection to humanity was cut. Stalin becomes a much more irritable figure, a much more argumentative, quarrelsome figure. He, he's starting to become what we would say uh, is a very tricky customer. Sergei Kirov was head of the Communist Party in Leningrad and he was very popular, quite a cheerful figure and he sort of fell out of favour with Stalin because um, in 1934 at the Party Congress Kirov got a much more lengthy ovation or applause than Stalin did and Stalin did not like this at all. Kirov makes this really powerful speech and Congress delegates uh, these votes to elect the Central Committee. And, and in this vote, Kirov receives only three negative votes, which is far fewer than any other candidate, including actually Stalin himself. Uh, and, and of course, Stalin, ever suspicious, his moustache kind of bristling with suspicion. You know, his views on Kirov go from, ah, oh, this guy's a nice loyal party member, to thinking, actually, he's a potential rival. 
On the 1st of December 1934, Kirov is shot and he's killed uh, by a man called Leonid Nikolaev at his offices in the Smolny Institute for reasons that were unknown. In fact, from that time onwards, when Stalin made public speeches or, or political speeches, people kept clapping for a very, very long time because they were fearful of how he would respond. Uh, now, there's been lots of speculation about this assassination. What was Stalin's role, if anything? In reality, I think it's likely that it was a genuine organic assassination, if you will, and not necessarily led by Stalin. But Stalin certainly ensured that he benefited from it. Stalin is very effective and, and nimble at exploiting things like this for, for political um, advantage. After Kirov's been murdered, Stalin calls for a really kind of swift and brutal punishment of the traitors and those found negligent uh, in Kirov's death. Uh, and what this does is it gives Stalin the perfect excuse to eliminate his political rivals. You know, he accuses Grigory Zinoviev and Lev Kamenev and uh, Prigozhin and, and all the others who had stood with Kirov in opposing Stalin of being what he calls morally responsible for Kirov's murder and therefore guilty of complicity. In much the same way that you know Hitler uses the, the Reichstag fire to move against his opponents, Stalin uses the Kirov assassination. You have these three big, widely publicised trials that successfully wipe out many of Stalin's rivals and critics. You know, you've got several really high-ranking communists, including Kamenev, Zinoviev, Bukharin, Rikov. Uh, they're all accused of treason uh, for conspiring with, you know, fascist powers, capitalist powers, uh, you know, to assassinate Stalin and other Soviet leaders. These, of course, are all trumped-up, fabricated charges. Stalin is suspecting one man to be an Okrana spy in his circle, and that is Malinowski. Uh, and that is confirmed to be absolutely correct many years later. Uh, and that is going to fuel Stalin's future distrust of his comrades. It's a distrust and a paranoia that he's going to take with him to his grave. By the mid-1930s, um, the view from the Kremlin is that they are encircled by hostile expansionist powers. You know, the Nazis have come to power in Germany, there is a militarised Japanese empire which wants to expand its territory, so they, they, there is a kind of a fortress mentality in the Kremlin. They believe that they are under, under siege. Stalin used terror as a political weapon. And so the great terror is um, a term which is, is used to describe a, a kind of campaigns of 
arrests and executions that are launched in the summer of 1936 and do not wind down until the autumn of 1938. They needed to root out all enemies, in particular internal enemies. Ethnic Germans or ethnic Poles or ethnic Koreans or Finns whose loyalties are in question because when war comes there is the fear that they might support you know, the other side. In, in the Great Purge, 36% or so of the victims, over a third, were, were minorities. Um, and you know, only 1.6 of the Soviet Union's population consisted of these minorities. So you can see this was incredibly spiteful and, and it was as evil as anything Hitler had ever done. You have 670,000 people arrested, and you have about half them, I mean, over half them, you have about 376,000 people executed. Okay, I mean, that, that is just horrific. Millions are swept into uh, the Gulag, which is this network of forced labor camps that emerge in the 1930s. Which in itself could be a death sentence, or at the very least, could be a long stretch of hard labor. As well as removing any potential political threats to Stalin, what he also does is to create an environment of fear, frankly. Uh, and, you know, there's always this ever existing threat of another purge, and nobody is ever going to feel safe ever again. Although Stalin had been really very successful in his elimination of political rivals, or, or people he thought were political rivals, within the Soviet Union, uh, there was still his biggest threat in his mind, was still at large, and that, of course, was Leon Trotsky. Stalin believed that Trotsky was his main political rival, and so he took steps to, first of all, remove him from his position to remove him from the party and ultimately to exile him. During the power struggle, as it initially starts to develop, Stalin's initial fear is that Trotsky will win out. But Stalin isn't alone in this fear. Many other leading Bolsheviks look to Trotsky as a potential leader. In October 1926, you have Stalin supporters voting Trotsky out of the Politburo. It's slightly behind the scenes, it's kind of conversations here and there, handshakes, promises of favours. He's very good at kind of bringing people on, on side so that when these big questions about the, about the, you know, the, the fate of the left opposition or the right opposition are debated, he has lots of supporters who are falling in behind him, partly because it's in their interest to do so, but partly because they've been persuaded of the merits of his argument. So during the power struggle, as Stalin starts to remove his rivals, Trotsky has his various positions taken away from him and he is exiled outside the Soviet Union. And during his exile, Trotsky, you know, he continues to oppose Stalin. Just because he's not in the Soviet Union doesn't mean that he still can't be noisy. Stalin's trial against me 
is built upon false confessions extorted by modern inquisitorial methods in the interest of the ruling clique. There are no crimes in history more terrible in intention and execution than the Moscow trials of Zinoviev Kamenev and of Petakov Radek. His trials developed not from communism, not from socialism, but from Stalinism, that is from the irresponsible despotism of the bureaucracy over the people. I think Stalin felt genuinely threatened by Trotsky. Trotsky was this aloof intellectual powerhouse who often seemed to talk down to Stalin. And I think this would have brought up some complicated emotions within Stalin about his position within the party and his sense of legitimacy, perhaps. So I think it probably did aggravate a chip on the shoulder, if you will. Trotsky remained a significant threat, or at least was perceived so by Stalin. Trotsky was hell-bent on advocating for his vision of what a revolution could and should be. He knew that his words would live on forever. He was writing, prolifically writing, to ensure that the truth would in one day out and that Stalin be removed and the revolution would get back on course. On the 28th of August, 1940, uh, Trotsky's in his study and, and in walks this uh, Spanish-born NKVD agent, man called Ramon Mercada, and he attacks Trotsky. Uh, and he uses a, a kind of an ice pick or an ice axe and, uh, and, he, and he basically kills Trotsky in this most violent and brutal fashion. And he's been sent by none other than Stalin. With the death of Trotsky, Stalin's sort of kind of biggest rival in his head, this is going to now mark the end of the Great Terror. As the sheer number of arrests and, and executions begins to take a toll on the economy of the Soviet Union, you know, that's because of a lack of workers and low factory output, Stalin decides the internal enemies had been defeated. The effect of the Great Terror is devastating on Russian government, on, on, on almost all sectors of society. It's particularly damaging for the army which effectively has its, its high command almost decapitated on the eve of the war. One of the last purges to take place during the Great Terror was the purge of the military in the Soviet Union. And, you know, the Navy was particularly suspected because, uh, you know, of all the contact that naval officers had with foreign people, so Stalin obviously thought that was immensely distrustful. And then you've got about 50 out of 57 Army Corps commanders uh, going 154 out of 186 division commanders, all army commissars, all 16 of them, uh, and of the army corps commissars, 25 or 28 are purged. So, I mean, it's almost 100% purged in some ways. Stalin is a, a, a Marxist-Leninist, that's his philosophy, and it, what he does is to consider conflict between capitalist powers as being inevitable. And so after Nazi Germany annexes Austria and then part of Czechoslovakia in 1938, he thinks, you know what, there's a war on its way. And in this respect, he was absolutely right. As Britain and France clearly were unwilling to commit to an alliance with the Soviet Union, Stalin realizes actually he can forge a better deal with someone else, and that's with the Germans. From Stalin's point of view, keeping the peace with Germany for a bit longer would allow him to bring 
Soviet armaments up to a level that he could wage war. During the various meetings and negotiations between Nazi Germany and the Soviets, those held within the Soviet Union, Stalin would host, and at a banquet, he would um, occasionally raise a toast to key Jewish Bolsheviks and key Jewish Soviets at the table. This would force those Nazi delegates to raise a toast to Jewish representatives. I think Stalin is asserting his power, he's asserting his authority, he's telling Nazi Germany that you are negotiating with us, you are on our territory right now. It is a power game, a power move. And so in August 1939, you have the Soviet Union signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with Germany, and this is a kind of non-aggression pact. And Stalin sees this as an opportunity, you know, both for territorial expansion and also a temporary peace with Nazi Germany. What the purge also does is to have this really quite significant effect on German decision-making uh, during the Second World War. And you've got many German generals opposing an invasion of Russia. Uh, but Hitler disagrees because he argues that the Red Army was, was far less effective uh, after Stalin had purged its intellectual leadership. Stalin was taken by surprise and shocked in June 1941 when Hitler unleashed Operation Barbarossa so the Nazi invasion of the USSR. That whole non-aggression pact goes out the window in June 1941, and this is going to start, you know, the most brutal war ever on the Eastern Front. Uh, and despite intelligence officers repeatedly telling him that Germany is going to invade, Stalin just ignored them, didn't believe it was true, and as a result was taken completely by surprise. In June 1942, the Germans begin a huge offensive in southern Russia. They want to punch their way down to get some oil fields. And, and, and what they're going to do is to threaten Stalingrad. Uh, of course, that's a city named after the Soviet leader. And that's going to have a lot of propaganda value if Hitler can take it. I think as Nazi Germany invade the Soviet Union, that Stalin is again feeling betrayed uh, by enemy forces, again betrayed by those that he's negotiating with. It stokes his sense of insecurity and mistrust. But what Stalin does is to order the Red Army to hold Stalingrad at all costs. And this becomes uh, one of the most brutal urban combats in human history. I mean, really close quarters, fighting, almost hand to hand. You, you, you've got direct assaults on civilians and air raids. Uh, uh, it is just the most brutal form of urban warfare. Initially, of course, Stalin and Hitler had signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. They were allies. However, when Germany invades the Soviet Union, Stalin finds some new allies. And those, of course, are the UK and the US. Yeah, I
during the Second World War, the Stalingrad is actually the deadliest battle to take place. Uh, and, you know, about two million people are, are lost. So it is one of the bloodiest battles ever in the history of mankind. Of the once 300,000 strong German Sixth Army, between 30,000 and 45,000 had been flown out wounded. Half of the size of the army was either killed or died of cold. And over 100,000 surrendered to the Russians as prisoners of war, of whom only some 6,000 survived their captivity to return to Germany. So this was an absolute rout for the German army. Stalingrad, in many ways, is a turning point in the war. The Soviet refusal to give up and to fight to the last man and to continue this brutal effort gives the Soviets ultimately the sense that they can withstand this Nazi invasion. It might mean that everything is raised to the ground, but they will not give in, they will not give up. And this, this sense of will to martyrdom that is inbred in, from that moment on within the Soviet psyche. Infamously, Stalin's son, who had been captured by Nazi forces, was offered in exchange for Nazi personnel, and Stalin refused to accept that exchange. It appears that Stalin is willing to accept that his son would potentially die in captivity rather than be exchanged. And this links to Stalin's wider policy of refusing the idea that his military forces, that his men and women in some cases fighting, should allow themselves to be captured. They should fight to the death. It would be an honor to become a Soviet martyr, if you will. I don't think we can overstate the importance of victory, of winning the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War, as it's known in the Soviet Union and still today in Russia. This victory had come at a huge cost. The human cost of the Soviet war effort has been estimated at over 20 million people. And so this huge effort, this huge sacrifice, becomes the new foundational event of the Soviet Union. Arguably just as important, to some perhaps more important than 1917 itself. Within the Soviet Union, I mean, Stalin is such a great hero. I mean, he's, he's, he's universally regarded as the kind of embodiment of victory and patriotism. He is kind of Mr. Soviet Union. Victory in the Second World War only led to an increase in Stalin's popularity. So this was this great victory against fascism, against Nazi Germany and her allies. And the Soviet propaganda machine took advantage of this victory really to cultivate even more this cult of the leader that surrounded Stalin. Товарищи, великая отечественная война завершилась нашей 
полной победой. С победой вас, мои дорогие соотечественники и соотечественницы. Слава нашей героической Красной Армии, отстоявшей независимость нашей Родины и завоевавшей победу над врагом. Слава нашему великому народу, народу победителю. Вечное слава героям, павшим в боях, врагов и отдавшим свою жизнь за свободу и счастье нашего народа. In the Allied countries, you know, Stalin is now being increasingly depicted in a really positive light over the course of the war. Uh, in 1941, you, you have the London Philharmonic Orchestra performing a concert in his honour to celebrate his birthday. Uh, uh, and Time magazine the following year even names him Man of the Year. Uh, and this is just essentially a few years after the Great Terror has ended. This man's a mass murderer. In the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, what happens to the British Empire is it starts to decline uh, and, and that's going to leave the United States and the Soviet Union becoming the two dominant world powers. The Soviets and to a large extent Imperial Russia before them often seem to promote the idea or the need for a buffer zone. They, there was a fear of external threats coming their way. Stalin was very keen to make sure that the states of Eastern Europe would be friendly to him and to set up communist states in those lands. His policies to expand led to a reaction from the United States and in particular from the Truman government to contain the Soviet Union and to contain Stalin's policy of expansion. United in detesting communist slavery. We know that the cost of freedom is high but we are determined to preserve our freedom no matter what the cost. At the end of the Second World War, you have the Soviet Union occupying or controlling Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, Poland and Eastern Germany. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from Moscow. On the 5th of March 1946, the former British Prime Minister and wartime leader, Winston Churchill, he's speaking at a college called Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. And he's summing up the situation in Europe. And he coins this very famous phrase in this speech, because he says, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste on the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Now, that phrase, iron curtain, that metaphor, uh, it, it, it is going to be used, you know, for decades to come. And that speech may have been one of the first shots fired in the Cold War, if you like. In the immediate wake of the Second World War, it's become apparent to the West just how much strength the Soviet Union could draw on. The reality is it's greatly weakened 
and exhausted by its war effort, but it's demonstrated itself capable of withstanding Nazi assault and pushing Nazi forces back to Berlin. Once Nazi Germany was defeated, the Grand Alliance broke down and the differences between the former allies became clearer. As soon as Stalin learns of the atomic bombs uh, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, he starts initiating a, a Soviet atom bomb project uh, and, and, he, and he pursues it aggressively and, and, and it accelerates really rapidly. And, and by the end of August 1949, uh, the Soviet Union actually secretly conducts its first successful atomic weapon test. Now clearly this is a monumental moment in the Cold War. This is the Soviet Union developing themselves, thinking of themselves as a superpower equal in the status of America, equal to the West. Ultimately, Stalin will be remembered as one of the bloodiest dictators in history. By the time Stalin's health is failing in the early 50s, the Cold War isn't being directed by Stalin alone, it isn't being directed from above. To a large extent, the mechanisms and the structure of the Cold War are already in place. The points of tension, the points of competition are already laid bare and these things can develop without Stalin's daily input. In his later years, like so many of us, Stalin's in really poor health. Uh, he takes his increasingly long holidays uh, and in 1950 and again in 1951, he spends almost about, what, five months uh, having a holiday at his dacha, uh, that's his holiday home. From 1946 until he dies, Stalin only gives three public speeches, and two of them only last a few minutes. All right. Mr. Fashinsky, if you got any statement about President Truman's yeah, Please, time. please, please, excuse me. Does Russia have the atomic no, no, bomb? No, 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 well, what you reply to me? do? Uh, but by this point, 
you're dealing with a, a man that's almost a living deity. You're dealing with someone whose sheer force of personality is at the center of the party and you cannot be questioned. And so to some extent, the Soviet Union is stuck in this position, unsure what's coming next, and it has to adapt to Stalin's health. Mm -hmm.